Hey friends, welcome to the second week of our study through Ephesians. I'm so pumped up, I'm so excited that you decided to join. This is the book, this letter to the church at Ephesus is maybe the most vibrant description in all of the Bible of just the simple gospel, the nuts and bolts of the good news that through Christ we have been adopted into God's family, and there are infinitely many implications of that. So I'm excited that you decided to jump in. This week we're going to be in chapter 1, uh, only eight verses, a shorter section this week, verses 15 through 23. So uh, last week there was some introductory information. Uh, if you haven't seen that, I'd encourage you to tune in and grab a hold of that. I'm just going to give you a quick recap on kind of the high-level big idea. Uh, the first one was that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, uh, we really saw three things. There's a list of three things that has been done for us. Verses 3 through 6, we find that we have been chosen by the Father. In verses 7 through 12, we see that we've been freely redeemed by the Son. And then in the last section, verses 13 and 14, we see that all of that has been sealed up by the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. It's a guarantee. It's protected by the power of God's Spirit. All of those things have been done for you, for me. We don't earn them. They're done for us. They're God's gift to us. Uh, secondly, one of the things that we saw last week and we'll see throughout the book really is kind of the overarching layout of the book of Ephesians. Uh, the first three chapters really describe the things that God has done for us, things that he freely gives to us before we do anything. And then the second half of the book really is the implications thereof, how we should live, how we should go about our life in light of what God has done for us. So uh, I just want to rattle off a quick list of nine things that we saw in those 11 verses, 3 through 14, and nine things that God has given to us freely. First, verse 3, every spiritual blessing Verse 4, holiness. Verse 5, adoption into God's family. Verse 6, grace in all things. Verse 7, forgiveness of our sins. Verse 9, knowledge of God's will. Verse 12, hope in Christ. Verse 13, full inclusion in what God is doing. Verse 14, lastly, the guarantee of our salvation. The common denominator in all those things, verses 3 through 14, all nine of them, is that God gives, we receive. God gives, we receive. There's no earning, there's no striving, there's no exchange. God gives, we receive. It's not transactional. Now, let's just get real. Okay, there's the list, nine things that God has given us. I'm guessing that nobody watching this, no one listening to this, jumped out of their seat with full enthusiasm, and just pumped their fists toward the heavens when they saw that list or heard me rattle those off. Uh, I'm guessing no one did that. Most of us are probably thankful for those things. I'm thankful for spiritual blessings. I'm thankful for being adopted into God's family and all of the other things that were on the list. Uh, but uh, I'm less than enthusiastically jumping out of my seat. I'm not quite that enthusiastic. Now, uh, let's, just, let's just play a game for a second. Uh, what if that list consisted of things like, instead of spiritual blessings, like a giant stack of cash, or perfect abs, or a perfect marriage, or a pony, or whatever it is that you get excited about? What if those kind of things were on the list? I'm guessing most of us would probably celebrate a little bit more enthusiastically if it was those kinds of things. And so the question I want to know is why? 
Like, why is it that we're more excited about natural, physical, tangible blessings than spiritual blessings, while Paul is just amped about these things that he calls spiritual blessings? Why are we melancholy while he is just psyched about them? They're such a big deal to him. Well, I want to offer you a simple analogy that will maybe help explain that. Um, Several years ago, some of you know, I went on a golf trip to Scotland. And, uh, you know, it's something I planned ahead for for several months. And I know a lot of golfers. And so I had a chance to talk with a lot of people who had made the same trip before. And overwhelmingly, they kept telling me the same thing. They kept saying, it's so green. You're not going to believe how green it is. I mean, it's just green everywhere you go. It's just so green. And eventually I was like, I know what you're going to say before you say it. It's green. I get it. It's, I live in the Pacific Northwest. I understand what's green. I know what green is. It's green. Well, the time finally came. Uh, we landed in Edinburgh, and we had to drive to St. Andrews, kind of the home of golf. And, uh, and it was probably a couple hours anyway, so we had to drive through the countryside. And as we're driving through the countryside, I'm looking around at the most overwhelming green I have ever seen in my life. I'm not kidding. Scotland is green. No joke. Uh, I didn't understand what they were saying until I got there. I knew what green was, but I didn't get it until I was there. I mean, it is green. Now, we're about to see in this next section, the Apostle Paul make an acknowledgement. He just sort of openly confesses, there are certain things, certain truths, realities, that we will never fully understand until we walk in them. We have to have God open our eyes, open our hearts to fully understand it. Even though we can understand the words on the page or the words that we're being told, he said there are certain things that we need to have our, that what he calls the eyes of our heart opened to. And so we're going to read today uh, from Ephesians 1, verse 15. Here we go. It says, for this reason, uh, for this reason, meaning it's a conjoining statement, uh, because of all the things we said before, because you've been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, because God has done this to you, for you. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. May God give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, this is really the meat of it. Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know three things, the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That is the same power. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, far above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, in this lifetime, but also in the age to come, in eternity. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Christ, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
Okay, that's, that was a lot. There's a lot there. Here's, here's a question that I want to ask every person, every one of us. We live in the post-enlightenment era. We live in the age of intellectual ascent. Have you ever seriously really considered the possibility that you won't be able to understand the things of God unless he reveals them to you? Have you, have you ever considered the possibility that no matter how much you learn, how many facts you, you gather up, no matter how much you study, you will never be able to fully understand the things of God unless He reveals them to you? Have you ever considered that as a realistic possibility? I ask that because we live in the age of intellectual arrogance. But it seems to me that if there's an eternal God and I am a finite person, it's quite possible that I'm not able to understand everything about Him without a little bit of help, without him helping me to understand. The best way for me to understand God is for him to show me, for me to look at what he says about himself. John Maxwell says it this way, we see things as we are, not as they are. In other words, everything we understand, everything we know, is, uh, has a shadow cast over it by our own limitations, our own experiences, our own understanding. We, we look through the lens of our own lives at everything, and so we understand the world around us through the filter of who we are. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or opened. Uh, if you got your Bible handy, I hope you're using a paper Bible, just, just underline that phrase. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I think it's reasonable to believe that if God is spirit, which he is, he's not bound by a physical body, then it makes sense that we would need a spiritual understanding to know him, not just a natural understanding. Uh, apparently, uh, apparently, because Paul is praying this, we're not likely to fully understand the things of God just based on our natural and physical observation and experience. Apparently, it takes spiritual understanding. And that's exactly what God is trying to give us through this letter. And I just want to give you props right now by saying, by taking time to dig into God's word and what he says about himself, by watching this video right here, you're actually making space for God to speak to your spirit, to open the eyes of your heart. Now, I want you to notice in here, Paul prays that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened so that we can see, so that we can know three specific things. The first one is that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, you might think, okay, hope's great, but you know, it's not really that big a deal. Uh, try living without it for a day. Try going without hope. There's a lot of things you can go through life without and be perfectly fine. Uh, going without hope would be a real bummer. It would be a pretty awful thing to be deprived of. Proverbs 13.12 says that hope lost makes the heart sick. And if you ever lost hope, you know that's true. Without the verse, without me saying it, you know that that's a true statement if you've ever been there. Well, we know from this verse that God's desire is for the follower of Christ to have hope, to have the eyes of our heart opened to what he's called us to so that we can be full of hope. Now, Here's how that gets practical. Just a way to put that to work in the everyday. Consider these couple of verses. Uh, Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Uh, Peter says essentially the same thing in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, 7. Uh, it says, Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, uh, my mind, my natural mind, 
can easily understand the words that are on the page. Tell God about your problems and he'll take care of it. Uh, I, my intellectual understanding says, okay, I think what that means is I should tell God about this problem and then maybe he'll do something about it. But spiritual understanding of those verses tells me something different. The eyes of my heart read something different on that page. The eyes of my heart understand that this is absolutely true. I can cast my cares on God because He cares for me and He will sustain me. Do you see the difference in what that does to my peace and my contentment when I have a spiritual understanding, not just a cognitive understanding of the words that are on the page? When we understand, when, we're, uh, when that verse is in our heart, not just our head, uh, we have assuredness of our calling. We have security in all circumstances. It changes our level of fear, our level of anxiety. When a person knows that they have hope in Christ, they have reason to lay down their pessimism, to lay down their fear, and be hopeful. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That's the first thing. The second one, uh, the Apostle Paul prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance. The riches of God's glorious inheritance. Just underline that phrase, the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Now let's just keep this one really simple, okay? When I say the word riches, most of us are going to think monetary wealth. That's what riches means to us. Uh, I'm suggesting to you what the Apostle Paul is overtly sta stating that riches, spiritual riches, far outweigh monetary or even not monetary, but tangible wealth. As evidence of that fact, uh, I want to I try this little exercise. As evidence of the fact that the riches of God's inheritance outweigh any other inheritance you could have, uh, I want you to just take a look at this picture that's on your screen. Uh, this is a place called Kaikit or Kaikwit, depending on how you uh, pronounce that. It at one time was the primary residence of John D. Rockefeller. Uh, in fact, there are actually 81 Rockefeller residences on the National Registry of Historic Landmarks. Uh, if you're not familiar with John Rockefeller, he is uh, the wealthiest American of all time, adjusted for inflation. Some estimates say that his wealth was uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about $400 billion. Uh, not bad. That was reasonably successful. Uh, John Rockefeller died in 1937. Now, wherever you're at right now, do me a favor. If you currently have more monetary wealth than John Rockefeller, raise your hand. Yeah, because in 1937, when he died, all of his wealth passed on to someone else. And when they died, all of their wealth passed on to someone else. All of us currently have more wealth than John Rockefeller. Verse 3, way back at the beginning of the book last week, it said that our inheritance in Christ lies in heavenly places. Well, of course it does. Of course it lies in heavenly places because it's a spiritual inheritance. If a temporary earthly inheritance, like maybe that that Rockefeller left his heirs, if that can be impressive, how much more impressive could a spiritual inheritance, how much more of a blessing could an eternal inheritance be than one that's going to pass away in a few years? I would say it's, it's without limitations. 
we might have a tendency to hear or read spiritual blessings on the page and think, oh, well, that's cool. Uh, I wish it was like tangible, touchable blessings. But spiritual blessings are much better because you are primarily a spiritual being. Uh, You are a physical being right now for a little while. Uh, If the statistics hold in your life, it'll be somewhere around 80 years on average. Uh, you're You're a physical being for a little while, but you are a spiritual being forever. So you tell me, how much better is a spiritual inheritance than a physical inheritance? Because God cares about your ultimate well-being more than about our temporary well-being, of course he's going to give us a spiritual inheritance. And we don't naturally understand this, that spiritual inheritance is better than physical inheritance. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like trying to convince a child that a, uh, that a dime is worth more than a nickel. Uh, no, it's not. No. Like, they look at it. The nickel's bigger. Of course it's not. Of course it's not worth less. It's bigger. Obviously, it's worth more. Uh, but, but you and I know that's, that's actually not the case. The dime's worth twice as much. Uh, it's like that. God is trying to reveal that to us, his children. In the book of Ephesians, God is helping us understand in our hearts that our spiritual inheritance in Christ far outweighs any physical inheritance we could ever hope to gain. Not just know it, but actually live with that conviction, that understanding in our hearts. And you might ask yourself, what kind of contentment, what would happen to your contentment level, your peace level in life, your satisfaction level in life, if I really believed this, if I really believed that my eternal inheritance in Christ was better than anything I could attain in the physical world. If I really believed that uh, on an ongoing basis, I bet we'd be more content. And Paul is offering that up to us. It can be yours. It's a gift, that kind of contentment. Okay, the third thing that God is wanting us to see, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believed. Now, if you got your Bible handy, just underline that phrase, incomparably great power. That's the third thing that God wants to open up the eyes of our heart to see, to know. This one's actually really simple. There are um, places in the Bible where, uh, as it's translated, there's, there's not a one English word that fully encompasses the full meaning of the Greek word. Uh, the word that's translated here, incomparably, the incomparably, uh, his incomparably great power for us who believe. The Greek word is hyperbolo. It means to surpass or to exceed. That's why some translations use the word immeasurable instead of incomparable. Think about what makes something immeasurable. If it's immeasurable, it is how beyond however far you can go. However far you can go, immeasurable is somewhere past that, somewhere farther. If something is incomparable, it's beyond however far the closest comparison can go. So let me ask you this. How much power is available to those who believe? Should we be able to do like miracles on demand? Some people think so. Uh, What about like superhuman feats of strength? I I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, But the amount of power that's available to us, if it's immeasurable and incomparable, the amount of power that's available is beyond however much power you need. 
However much power you need to accomplish all that God has planned for your life, that power is available to you. I pray that the eyes of your heart be opened so that you would know you have the power of God in excess of everything you need to accomplish His plan for your life. Uh, Whether you're uh, a teenager just deciding, trying to figure out what you're going to do in the world, or you're at the other end of the spectrum, uh, no matter where you're at, if if you're still here, God's got plans, and you have access to the power in excess of what you need to accomplish all that God has in mind for your life. Now, I just want to make one last observation uh, to wrap up our study of chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. What we've seen today through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is that God is revealing three things. The hope to which he has called us, the wealth that we have inherited, and the power that is available to us. The last point is found in the last two verses, 22 and 23. It says this, God placed all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Here's the point I want to make. The hope that God has called us to, the wealth that we can inherit, that we have inherited, uh, the power that is available to us, those all are attainable only one way, through faith in Christ. He is head over everything. All things are placed under his feet, and we, the church, are his body. The hope, the wealth, the power that he offers to us, the spiritual blessings, they're not available through any type of work or intellectual ascent or moral striving. They are only available, they are ours, they belong to us through Christ alone who is head over everything. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know the hope to which you are called, the wealth that you have inherited, and the power that is available through Christ. I love you guys. We'll see you next week for Ephesians chapter 2, my favorite 10 verses in the entire Bible. I'm excited. I'll see you then.